Hi listeners, it's Tom here. Just letting you know that what you are listening to right now is one of two episodes of Outrage and Optimism that will be dropping into your podcast feed in the next couple of days. This one covers the implications of the downfall of Boris Johnson as Prime Minister in the UK with some really insightful conversations that cover what's going to happen next, what we need to be concerned about and what opportunities there are for progress. The other episode, which will be with you in a couple of days, will look at the decision at the Supreme Court in the US to limit the ability of the EPA to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. And there we will talk to former presidential councillor John Podesta and to former administrator of the EPA, Lisa Jackson. So enjoy this episode today and look out for that one, which will be with you very soon. And we'll be back as a regular podcast next week. Thanks. Here's the episode. Welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Tom Rivik Karnak. <laughs> you, you can do it if you put your back into it. Cut, cut, okay. cut. Sorry. Do it again. Um, do it again. Right. Go ahead, Tom. Sorry, again. Hello and welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Tom Rivik Karnak. I'm Christiana Vieres. And she's Christiana Figueres. And I'm Paul Dickinson. <laughs> no one knows why Christiana's laughing so much today, but it's good to see um, today. We reflect on the downfall of Boris Johnson and ask what the implications will be for climate and nature leadership. We speak to Ben Goldsmith, founder of the Conservative Environmental Network and board member at the UK Environment Department, and to Chris Skidmore, Member of Parliament, former Energy Minister and Chair of the UK All-Party Parliamentary Group on the Environment. <laughs> Thanks for being here. Thanks for being here. Clay, can you do something with that? No, <laughs> I don't think so. Right, the Boris Johnson Conservative government in the UK has gone and done what it has been threatening to do for the last few months and actually collapsed. It's been quite dramatic here in the UK over the last week or so. Ministers resigned and then more ministers resigned in the end, I think 50. And then Boris Johnson finally came out and said that he would go as prime minister. Now, that happened four or five days ago, and we now know what the process will be. We will have a new prime minister by the 5th of September. In the UK. In the UK. Thank you, Paul. And there were 11 candidates. There's now 10 who are all vying to succeed him. Now, in order to be successful, those candidates have to win the support of the parliamentary party, the MPs, who will whittle the candidate pool down to two, and then members of the Conservative Party, which is 150,000 mainly white, older people who live in the southeast of the UK, will vote to Sorry, choose between those older two. older people or old? Is there a particular gender to that? <laughs> no, there's no particular gender. Any particular attitudes these people have that are, you know, less and less acceptable? There's all sorts of horrible stereotypes, but let's move on. Okay. Right. Anyway, so so the question here is, there's a lot to be thankful for, probably, in the departure of Boris Johnson. I mean, those of us who were remain will always abhor Brexit. The parties in down The entire European Union. I mean, talk entire, about a breakup. 300 and something million wonderful which, people that exactly. we managed to kind of irritate and they're 24 miles away. I cannot think of anything more stupid. Anything more. And then you go on to like parties in Downing Street and all sorts of things. I mean, it's just the litany is, is everywhere and on display for people to see. But... One thing that we possibly should give our attention to, and we'll do it this episode, is for all of that, Boris Johnson has kept the UK focused on the climate and nature issue. Net zero by 2050 came out just before he took office. He introduced ambitious targets for 2035. He has led the UK and and deployed diplomatic support to try to 
get an outcome at COP26, which was obviously delegated to Alok Sharma, but the prime minister remained committed. And the nature agenda has also been close to his heart. And what we've seen in that time period is that there are plenty of people in the Conservative Party that don't want him to do that at all. And many of those players are now circling. So we'll come to that in a minute and we'll talk to Ben. But first, I'd love to hear both of you. What is your analysis of Boris Johnson as a climate prime minister in the UK? And first, the Brit. I'm delighted to go first. And I'm going to answer your question by not answering it. The I want to start off with a prime minister. I want to contextualise Boris Johnson within something important. And I'm going to draw upon a prime minister, Gordon Brown, who was our prime minister in 2008. Now, 2008 was a very great year because it was the year that the Climate Change Act was adopted as the UK's basis for uh, responding to climate change. And it requires emissions reductions to be reduced uh, and that climate change risks are adapted to do it. It establishes a climate change committee uh, that ensures emissions targets are reached and it's evidence-based. That, with a good civil service, has helped to build a fantastic consensus, I would argue, a cross-party political consensus in the UK about climate change. And that's what Boris Johnson went into. Now, he also is a great lover of Winston Churchill and, you know, studied Churchill and written about him extensively, I think. And, uh, I've said before, on the back of the five-pound note in the UK, it says, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears and sweat. But the point being that although it may not always be the most popular cause, uh, a certain particular chapter of British history shows that the difficult decision is the one that actually um, delivers uh, you know, the, the necessary outcome for the nation. And I think Johnson was just about enough of a, of a smart politician and reader of the people to know that he needed to reflect the national consensus and support and indeed build upon climate change leadership. Because I actually, I don't really feel like a UK citizen. I feel like a citizen in the world. But if I am waking up on the other side of the bed and feeling a bit like a UK citizen, I can feel quite proud. It's a sort of awful word to associate with nationalhood, but I can feel quite proud Excuse of our leadership. Excuse me. Uh, apart Costa from Costa Rica, Rica. where, <laughs> yes. where, yeah. where everyone marches around in national dress, sort of ha- hailing the, the benefits of the, of the golden nature. But, but, but my point being, I, I think that actually uh, Johnson was, was surfing, you know, correctly on a zeitgeist of consensus in the UK that we should all be very proud of. And I hope other countries will, will, will increasingly join us in. Or that the UK will continue on, right? Which is far from guaranteed. But Christiana... Oh, doom and gloom. No, no, no. I mean, it's, it, I mean, it's, oh, no, it's fine. There's well, I mean, there's always a the, we have in the UK to... a bipartisan climate consensus from a party that's pretty far right and one that's on the left. And they both until now have agreed that climate action is important. That is now under threat. There are plenty of Tory leadership hopefuls who want to abolish net zero. You know, um, Kemi Badenoch, who's actually one of the top leaders now for the, for the candidacy, said that she thought that net zero was um, unilateral economic demilitarization. Uh, I mean, it's just bonkers language. But Christiana. What? <laughs> Economic demilitarization. Wow. Okay, so I would actually like to agree with both of you, okay? I agree with Paul that it is pretty unique to have, especially in the Anglophone world, uh, it is pretty unique to have bipartisan consensus on climate responsibility. And all, all credit to the UK and to the factors that led to that. I also would agree, Tom, with you that um, that that now that might be under threat, certainly with new leadership in the Tory party. 
And the reason why I agree with both of you is because although there is um, that bipartisan consensus, it was also taken to a new level of leadership for what I would call either circumstantial conditions or maybe you want to call them historical conditions. But it was the very interesting coming together of a Brexit and the UK's international position being placed seriously under question. Is the UK still an international leader? Is it still an international player? Or after Brexit, has it actually just sort of, I don't know, descended into being a little island somewhere that no one can find? And <coughs> the cop being in the UK gave Boris Johnson the um, immediate and very tempting and very well-used opportunity to stage the UK's international leadership again. And he did it very well. He did it by naming, you know, um, Alok Sharma as COP president, who did a brilliant job with very, very difficult circumstances, um, a COP that was delayed because of COVID, a COP that came within very difficult geopolitical situations, and a COP that actually did deliver. So maybe it didn't deliver the magical potion, but there is no magical potion to climate change. It definitely delivered what it had to, and then some. And, and Boris was actually quite brave in the way that he supported the COP, but also in, in, in fact, just his speech at the COP. Now, that doesn't mean that all government policies and decisions were coherent sure. during the Johnson administration. There were really some some serious warts in there. But no one can deny that Boris really understood that the COP and climate change represented a very important international positioning for the UK, and that not only did he understand it, but he actually stepped into that role quite brilliantly. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think there's a few things there. Chris Skidmore, MP, who we'll talk to you later, who's done a brilliant job of trying to keep the government focused on this, um, has pointed out that actually the net zero policy is incredibly popular across the electorate in the UK. People really like that the government is being ambitious on climate. And from a Conservative Party perspective, you know, liberal, urban, young and vo younger voters hate them because of Brexit. And they seem to be, you know, they're toxic, right, is the language that's used in the UK. Their stance on net zero and climate is what's detoxified that party for some people. And so that has been the political fuel that has led Boris Johnson to actually keep this open liberal approach that includes nature and climate, or to the degree that he did. On the other side, most right of centre parties around the world are now anti-immigration. They you know, have soft tinges of racism or even harder in some areas. They are climate skeptic or they at minimum think that we should kind of go slow. And what I'm afraid of is that in the UK, if we now row back in that direction and the Conservative Party nominates somebody who is a, a sort of a slightly warped version of what could be called conservatism, not about protecting nature and protecting the climate, but more about protecting borders and other things like that, then actually we will have lost one of our best examples of how climate can be relevant to the right. So that's what we should talk to Ben Goldsmith about, yes. our friend who will be with us in a minute. Um, and we're going to be, he's going to be dropping into our call in just a second, listeners. Ben was the founder of the Conservative Environment Network. He has been 
a leader on this issue for a very long time um, in conservative circles and as a conservative leader. And in particular, I think has been very thoughtful about the way in which the philosophy of conservation fits with conservatism. So I think we should start there with him. And then later, we'll talk to Chris Gidmore MP, who will dial in about the actual politics of how it's going to work out in the race. Do you want me to give a little bit of... You, go ahead. Ben's not here. We've got a few minutes. Paul Dickinson, so Let me go. just give a little, bit, a little bit more background on this context, because I think it's really important to sort of... I was comparing kind of Trump and Johnson, weirdly enough, because they're both sort of described as populists. And I think that Trump has, you know, presided in this highly divided, enormous, physically enormous country, the United States, where people are breaking up into different factions and the people talking about the USA like, like an emerging market and if it will break up. As Christiana pointed out so delicately, we are a tiny little country in the UK. Uh, you know, it takes a tiny little country to know a tiny little country, but we are a tiny little country. And I think we've got more of a consensus around money making, actually around climate change. To give you an example, um, the latest round of uh, renewables auctions had saw 11 gigawatts, uh, 7 gigawatts of offshore wind, 2.2 of solar, 1 gigawatt of onshore wind. You know, that's enough to power 12 billion homes. It's all going to be online by 2026, 20, 27, approximately, about the same time as the Hinkley Point uh, nuclear reactor is going to be producing electricity at two to three times the price. So we're now, we've got the, we've got the, the city of London, we've got, you know, the global financial institutions. We're a kind of global green finance hub. We are funding massive rollout renewable energy in the UK. And that is putting us in a fantastic position to lead the mm -hmm. rollout of renewable energy around the world. You know, the logistics, the finance, the the whole project, the, the, you know, the putting it all together. That's what we're doing. So there's that backdrop. I'm also going to shout out to things like the BBC, which I think is a fantastic guardian. Brilliant what yeah. they've done. Yes. You know, all of this sort of means that the UK is very, very lucky. As I said, I'm, I'm really not proud of my country on so many different dimensions, not least because it's got lots of problems and secondly, because it's not good to be proud of countries with the exception of Costa Rica. But I really <laughs> think that there are lessons for the world potentially in terms of climate change and, mm. and how we manage to actually have our sort of civil service, our legislative body supporting a consensus rather than the, the somewhat tragic situation in the US where, uh, you know, a, a kind of doctrinaire uh, Supreme Court has said, well, you know, these attempts to get round the Senate, you know, to, to regulate greenhouse gas emissions are anti-democratic. And yet the Senate and a lot of the Congress is basically controlled yeah. by the fossil fuel industry. And so it's checkmate. We're going to do a separate episode on that this week because those are the two big things that happened this week. But yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Paul. Um, so, right, well, let's give, let's give our first guest a call. Let's give Ben a ring. And Tom, you're going to ask the first question, Tom? Yeah, I can do that, yeah. Yeah. Okay. We got it. Hi, Tom. Hey, how are you doing? How are you? Great. Nice to hear your voice. I'm here with Paul Dickinson and Christiane Figueres. Thank you so much for joining us. You're on the podcast. Oh, I'm delighted to be on the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. Not, not, a, not at all. So, um... So, Ben, where are you today? I'm in Somerset, in the, in the sweltering English summer, <laughs> and um, actually quite happy not to be in London. Um, so, so, Ben, we're going to dive in. We're only going to get you for about 10, 15 minutes, I suppose. And obviously, what we want to focus on this week is this critical moment that we're in with the evolution of the Conservative Party. And, you know, Boris is going, and, and that is what it is. But one of the things we've just been talking about is the fact that 
you know, he has led on climate and nature and consistently kept that as part of his agenda. And we're now looking at a scenario with new candidates, not all of whom share that political instinct and some of whom are kind of against it. But I just want to start by you have quite a strong view on the philosophy of conservatism and the fact that that links in closely with conservation. And that, I think, as your work as the Conservative Environment Network and and other things has been really important to the philosophy of bringing conservation and conservatism together. So I'd just love to invite you by starting off to speak about what should conservatism be in relation to climate and nature protection? So I I was involved in, from the start, the UK Conservative Environment Network back in 2010, 2011. And one of the things we did was engage um, a communications professional from California to help us figure out what kind of language works best with those on the centre-right around issues such as climate change and and the broader question of environmental sustainability. And uh, the the culmination of his work gave us three words. Uh, And those words were uh, responsibility, and I remember him writing in brackets, particularly towards future generations, uh, stewardship and resilience. Mm -hmm. Those were the three words that he described um, uh, to to, to mean kind of the central to conservative ethos. and, and to my mind, um, you know, that, that's where it's at. I mean, the clue is in the name. Uh, con- to be a conservative is to be about conserving things. You know, it's about um, stewardship of shared assets, and particularly the natural environment. And in so doing, it's about building resilience into our systems, into our agricultural systems, into our energy systems. You know, by definition, if we move towards homegrown renewables and the much greater efficiency with which we use energy and, 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 and raw materials and resources of all kinds, we are building resilience into into um, the fabric of our nation. So it strikes me as profoundly conservative um, to want to build a healthy, clean, resilient nature all around us. Um, and and I think um, if you look at the history of environmentalism, it was often those on the centre-right that were leaders on this. I mean, it was Thatcher and Reagan that built the Montreal Protocol, which mm. was the world's answer to the hole in the ozone layer, a hugely successful international treaty. And they expended enormous diplomatic and political capital in making that happen. Um, Nixon, I mean, we remember Nixon for other reasons, but it was Nixon who introduced the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, who declared that all American waterways should be fishable, swimmable, and drinkable. Hmm. So there's there's kind of a rich history of environmentalism on the centre-right, but that's somehow been forgotten in the last 20 or 30 years, and I'm unsure why. Christiana? Ah, but that is exactly the question, Ben. Why? Why has that been uh, laid uh, on the side and in the in the past? And are we facing that danger now in the UK? So the UK has been one of the few countries or possibly even the only country that I can think of in which conservatives have polled higher on the environment in recent years than the other parties. And I think that the Conservative Environment Network has been instrumental in that because we've been there at the center of the conservative movement, um, banging this drum around environmental sustainability, harmony with nature, and particularly these three words, you know, responsibility, resilience, and stewardship. And it seems to have been working. We now have more than half of all backbench conservative MPs in a caucus. They're all signed up to a declaration which pledges a commitment to, to net zero by 2050 or sooner, to, um, to uh, a restoration of the natural fabric of our country, which, of course, is one of the most nature-depleted on Earth. 
Um, and um, we, um, what we've done here has worked. Um, and I think that, that I think that um, I, we have a plan to take that work elsewhere and to start to talk to conservative environmentalists elsewhere, places like Australia, Canada, the United States, Brazil, where environmentalism is, um, is, is not present on the conservative side of the political spectrum. And Ben, can I just ask about building that out? Because it's a huge achievement to, to have that uh, consensus embedded and growing inside the Conservative Party in the UK and in other, as you said, centre-right parties. But how does that also um, weave into a cross-party consensus? Because I guess, you know, we're always trying to evolve that that kind of bouncing out into one party or the other. You know, I, I personally, you know, really applaud the achievements of Al Gore, but it's kind of heartbreaking that he was a democratic politician and therefore there seemed to be that, you know, this critical... Um, national security or even global security issue of climate change ended up being of one party. How can you? How can we sort of work with parliamentarians to to weave uh, that cross party consensus? Yeah, I think for a start, messaging is the most important thing um, in getting them to listen and getting to engage with these issues. Um, I mean, I, th- I think that the solutions themselves divide along two lines, both of which appeal to conservative politicians and thinkers. The first is economic. A lot of the low-carbon or no-carbon alternatives are actually cheaper and better than than what we've used previously. And I think the other part of the answer is spiritual. I think we need to reconnect people with nature Mm. um, in in an emotional or spiritual way. Now, I think that people crave contact with nature. I think we need it for all aspects of our well-being, individually and collectively, and I think that somehow conservatives get that. You know, I think conservatives get this idea of a shared inheritance and so on. Um, when you get conservatives to the place of understanding that building, uh, um, that, that tackling climate change and building harmony with nature actually creates um, uh, a more economically rational and a better and more desirable world in which to live, um, then they tend to come on board is what we found. And when they come on board and a movement starts to grow in strength on the conservative side of the political spectrum, then you build a debate with the other parties around what the solutions are. And that's the place we're in in the UK. It's not so much an argument over whether there's a problem, which is where America's stuck. The Democrats say, we've got a problem, we've got to act on climate. And the Republicans say, no, there's no problem, it's a conspiracy theory. Well, here in the UK, we don't have that. We have a general cross-political consensus that there's an issue that needs tackling, and that the solutions are in a large part desirable. And so you then have a bit of a debate around what those solutions look like and how you bring them about. And that's a much healthier place to be. Yeah. Ben, this is so insightful. Thank you. We'll let you go in just a sec. I just want to ask, I mean, you've pointed out that this... um you know, this this cross-party consensus is possibly unique globally and it's been incredibly important in the UK and we and others have pointed to it as an example of where we can get to in more difficult countries. How worried are you, given the state of the debate now amongst the candidates, with some of them saying that we should abandon net zero concerns about high energy prices, that that is going to come to an end with the new election of a, a new Tory prime minister? I mean, I'm worried. I can't pretend not to be worried. There's no doubt that Boris Johnson has been the greenest prime minister we've had. Um, it, it's been a central pillar of his administration. And I think that Boris Johnson, above all else, has a sense of the sacred. Hmm. You know, I sort of imagine if, if, if one were to go for a walk in the park with him and a kestrel were to be hovering above you, you know, he'd notice it, he'd pause and reflect upon it. You know, whereas I think 
lacking um, um, in, in, in many politicians is this sense of nature as a sacred thing. And um, I think that's where it comes from in him. Um, that combined with a very, very effective briefing on climate change that he received from the chief scientist soon after taking office, um, which, which, which freaked him out um, mm. and got him serious on climate action. <laughs> um, I, I, I um, know enough about his successors. I, uh, their record is not particularly strong in any case on, on the environment. I know that Penny Mordaunt, as Secretary of State at DFID, which is the International Development Department, was not at all open to the idea of increasing funding for nature restoration in, in Britain's age budget. Um, they just couldn't get her interest or attention on that issue. Um, Rishi Sunak has actually been the most generous chancellor we've had towards nature, but possibly in response to priorities number 10. And I don't know how personally committed he is. He's made a speech today on nature. Well, me he mentioned nature, which is enough to have all the environmental community celebrating. <laughs> Um, it, look, let's, it's not it's not a strong bench. Um, that being said, polling suggests over and over again that the majority of voters across age groups, urban, rural, uh, left and right, they want action for nature restoration here and abroad and for tackling the climate crisis. And you'd be a very foolhardy political strategist if you um, if you were to turn away from this agenda now. So it, it's possible that wherever they stand on nature to whatever degree they have a sense of the sacred, just uh, in the interest of, of sound political strategy, that they will do the right thing by these issues. But um, I can't pretend not to be a bit worried. Yeah. It strikes me that in, in that formula that you just put there, Ben, um, the, the public sentiment and the awareness of the spiritual, there's another factor that you mentioned that you didn't summarize now, which is a very strong science briefing. So you, it's very difficult to bring people onto any spiritual awareness. We know that. Um, but is a serious understanding of the threats that we're all under from scientists and from economists, would that actually be one way of getting new Tory leadership to take this on more seriously than we're currently expecting? Of course, they're trying. The, the, the chief scientist, Patrick Balance, has invited all members of parliament from all parties to a briefing on climate change specifically. And my understanding is that 10% of MPs took up the offer, yeah. including, including none of the leadership candidates for the Conservative Party. So I don't know to what extent our parliamentarians even understand the scale of the threat. I mean, when they, when they can so flippantly switch around on this issue, start talking about um, the cost of filling your, your, um, your, your car's petrol tank, you know, and, and so on, um, as, as if these are parallel issues, as if one of them is not an existential um, uh, threat um, to our civilization, indicates to me that they don't quite get it. Yeah, um, yeah but, but Ben, as you as you build this um, network of of uh, conservative members of Parliament who who are part, you know, prioritizing environment, um, I think that's just a, a great way to to highlight the pressure that the public feel towards their elected representatives to deliver the outcomes that we know that we need. Because you can't hide from this issue. And thank you for bringing those parliamentarians' attention to that to that stark fact. Yeah. But Ben, we're going to let you go. Thank you so much. This has been very insightful. Really appreciate you giving us some of your time and hope you'll come back on when the new Prime Minister is in place and we can chat a bit more about what to expect. 
Thank you for having me. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Great. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Thanks, Ben. Bye. Bye. Okay. So interesting to get a chance to chat with Ben while this is unfolding at this moment. Um, What did you both think about that? Well, I was bowled over by how um, open and eloquent he is about our relationship to nature and how unafraid he was to use the word spiritual. That is not common in politicians. That is not common at all. So, you know, kudos to him for for calling it as it is because I, I you know he he used the word very intentionally and we all know that throughout the pandemic everyone has been craving contact with nature but there are few who are willing to use the word spiritual in public mm. i'm i'm also going to try and get a prize for um quoting something a hundred times <laughs> on outrage and optimism i'm only up to about 37 something to look forward is, to it is the it is the most quoted thing on this podcast. Is it the, Churchill? Uh, the comment from oh, Gus yeah, Beth. No, no, Gus Beth, this one. Yeah. But, uh, I think we all know it off by heart. Yeah, I used to think the top environmental problems were biodiversity loss, ecosystem collapse and climate change, but I was wrong. The top environmental problems are selfishness, greed and apathy. And to deal with those issues, we need a spiritual and cultural transformation. And we scientists do not know how to do that. So I thought it was interesting, Christiana, to hear you talk about the combination of the chief scientist and then... Um, well, he was the one who said that, right? He mentioned the scientist briefing of Boris. Um, that's true. And, that's and true. he said that Boris does have this um, sensitivity for um, his contact with nature and his awe of nature. Yeah. He was the one who brought them mm. both together. Yeah, I saw some quote actually. Somebody saying like we 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 worship an invisible god, and then we we destroy nature without realizing that actually One nature the is the god that we should be worshiping. <laughs> That's actually on Ben's Twitter account. That's his there bio. it is. There That's you go. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is me doing so, my research, then imagining I thought it myself. <laughs> um, so I went to a dinner last week with Ben. He was down here in Devon, and he invited me to a dinner he was hosting with the Devon Environment Network. And he gave a quite brilliant speech about the fact that he'd never heard a nightingale sing in the UK. You know, it's just like it really touched something in people, this like this real love. And I think what he's done so beautifully is he's pointed out the love, the spiritual element of nature and the fact that that needs to be at the heart of our politics. And I mean, I thought actually it was a moving tribute to Boris Johnson, actually, what he just said about that personal element, which is not something people have said that much about him and maybe should have been said more while he was in office. But my sense of him is he's actually kind of really worried because this cross-party consensus that he's done so much to build along with others over the last years is now really under threat. If if, if we end up with a, with a Penny Morden or a Kemi Badenoch or even someone like Liz Truss, their instinct is not going to be to protect climate budgets, to focus on nature. It's going to be completely the opposite. And that is going to have the unfortunate effect, and I don't mean to be too negative, of rolling back the most, probably one of the most bipartisan, strongest bipartisan consensus on climate change, certainly in the G20. We can't let that happen, though I'm not quite sure what we can do about it. Paul's wagging his finger at me. I put it to you, Mr. Rivet Karnak, that it's the world is run by piles of money, and there's a big enough pile of money backing low-carbon technologies of the United Kingdom that these petty politicians, whichever one is chosen to lead the Rat Pack, will not be able to overpower this great pyramid of money. 
Well, I mean, ultimately, I think you're right, but they can slow it down, and that counts for a lot at the moment. Mm. Right. So uh, this is a special episode where we have two guests, and the next one uh, is Chris Skidmore, MP, is going to be dialing in in a minute. So Chris Skidmore was Minister of State at Department of Education and Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy from September 2019 to February 2020, um, and he was the Interim Energy and Climate Change Minister attending Cabinet from 2019. Uh, he is the Conservative MP for Kingswood, which is just near Bristol. Um, and he has played an incredibly important role in Parliament of trying to get the Parliamentary Party, as well now as the leadership hopefuls, to focus on the issue of climate and to realise how important it is for their electability. He recently wrote a joint op-ed with Zach Goldsmith, Ben's brother, who is currently a Minister for the International Environment in the current government, pointing out that from their perspective, ditching net zero would be electoral suicide. So what should we talk to Chris about? Chris Chris is uh, inside the machine that chooses the next Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. He can see the cogs and the wheels, the whirling camshafts and the pistons and the oil. Uh, he understands it all. We must ask him how it works. There's oil inside that machine. That's not very good. No, yeah. no, oil should be in machines. You either replace the oil or you replace the machine. That's what I was taught. Well, certainly we should hear from him how it's working internally. I also think I'd be fascinated to ask him the vibe in the Palace of Westminster at the moment where all the MPs are gathered. I understand that Jacob Rees-Mogg's European Research Group, incredibly climate-skeptic Brexit-supporting group, there's been a parade of Tory party candidate leadership candidates in to see that group of MPs making their case for why those MPs should back them. It'll be very interesting to hear what the narrative is amongst MPs and who is talking about climate and who does he see as actually leading on this issue and who does he think would take us in the wrong direction. He's a rather sinister chap, that Rhys Mogg, and I think he's probably worked out that being Prime Minister isn't the way to have most power in the United Kingdom. He's like a Harry Potter villain. Yes, enormous lapels. I mean, they're so wide that if the wind blew, he would take I off saw, I saw an amazing picture of him the other day out with his umbrella um, with his son. Um, and someone had said, these colourised photos from the 1920s are really quite remarkable. And it was a picture taken from him last week. <laughs> No, but his, that's his sort of trademark identity. Is kind yeah. of he lives in the 1920s because it was simply yeah. better then, you know. I'm not entirely sure he was right. Okay, let's call Chris. Christiana, do you want to jump in with the first question with Chris? No, 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 no. You, you Brits are totally in the lead here. Okay. So shall, shall I ask the first question again? Which 100%. Just be about the, yeah. Hi, Chris. Oh, hi. Hi, it's, All right. it's Tom Sorry. here. How are you? I'm not too bad. Is this the, I'm on a telephone. Is that the right thing to do? Is no, no, this is absolutely perfect. I'm here with Christiana and Paul as well. Thanks so much for joining us. Great. Thanks very much. Great. So, Chris, we're going to dive in and we just wanted to take a relatively short slice of your day. So like 10, 15 minutes or something. But um, yeah, you know, sure. obviously, like many others, we're sort of watching this and slightly wringing our hands in the sense that, um, you know, there was love him or loathe him. Boris Johnson did keep the attention on the climate and nature issue to a pretty impressive degree at moments. And if you look at the bench of candidates, it's far from clear that they will continue to do that. So I'd just love to hear you talk for a couple of minutes about how you see the candidates lining up. Um, and whether or not you are feeling um, positive about the, the chances of net zero and nature protection being a high priority for the new prime minister. Sure. So I think you know, the first thing to recognise is this sort of leadership contest is incredibly uh, truncated in terms of a timeline. So we've got the close of nominations taking place today at 6pm, uh, and then we'll have a first round ballot uh, tomorrow, a second round ballot on Thursday. 
and then it will be done and dusted by the 21st of July by the time Parliament breaks up. So there's not much time really to um, actually interview the candidates. Um, I'm putting together an environment hustings to give the members of Parliament the chance to interview uh, candidates who've got across the line. The threshold they need is 20 MPs. Um, but obviously, a lot of people are already committed. So it's almost like the, the race is, is, is it's almost over before it's begun. A number of the candidates have already come out and made hostile you know, comments on net zero in particular. Yikes. That's not to say that they are anti-climate, um, but you know, there's a bit of an element where net zero is being brought into a culture war, hmm. um, that somehow it's an unaccountable target. One candidate's referred to it as an arbitrary target uh, without any reference to obviously you know, the work that has gone on in identifying net zero as the framework by which you achieve 1.5 uh, or limit 1.5 degrees uh, warming. Um, so I have sort of come out of the blocks to say, you know, my vote is dependent on finding a candidate who's going to commit to net zero. They're not going to try to play political football uh, with you know, a target that the UK became the first G7 country uh, to legislate uh, for net zero three years ago. Yeah. And obviously on the back of you know, we've COP26, we still have uh, two months or three months left of our presidency. Uh, and it would be an absolute tragedy if obviously the UK was seen to be rowing back on its climate commitments. So uh, Alex Sharma actually sort of retweeted an uh, article I jointly wrote with the uh, actually the current sort of environment minister, Zach Goldsmith, yeah. where we talked about actually uh, abandoning net zero would be electoral suicide. Yes, we saw that. Um, thank you for that. Thank you very much for that. Um, and Chris, how lonely or how much in company do you feel in that position that you have taken for whoever is going to win your support? I, mean, I think it is uh, yeah, a bit of a lonely place because I think a lot of the priorities of the current candidates are obviously there's a huge direction around you know, what to, how to deal with inflation in the UK. So the sort of the big ticket item that people are talking about is do they have uh, you know, fiscal conservatism, or, or do you go on a sort of tax-cutting route? And I think some people are sort of, there was a, seemed to be a view that actually by not talking about the environment, maybe it won't trigger off some MPs to sort of say you know, that they actually want to abandon uh, particular environmental climate targets. So I think there's a bit of reticence to talk about it. I, I come from the sort of opposite view of thinking, well, she, if it's not on the agenda now, if can, candidates are, don't commit you know, either way to net zero, then that potentially creates you know, a, a problem down the track in terms of actually not getting them on record for, for that. So, so that's why I've been sort of keen to do. Um, and I think you know, the, the question will be that this will come down to two candidates come next week uh, and it will go to the Conservative membership. Uh, and obviously there are a number of divides, whether it's sort of you know, looking at uh, tax, as I said, whether it's looking at sort of wider cultural war issues. There's lots of issues around trans rights that for some reason uh, certain MPs get quite vexed about. Uh, I'm just determined to make sure that net zero isn't sort of one of those divisive mm. uh, issues uh, when it comes to the, the membership vote next week. Because when it comes to actually marginal seats and looking at sort of who wins a general election, climate and the environment is, is a, a top three priority behind the economy and healthcare. So it, I think it's really important that the Conservative Party doesn't lose sight and turn inwards um, and, and recognizes that, you know, actually, if we want to get elected again in 2024, if we abandon our mm. net zero commitments, we potentially, uh, will, as I said in the article, is that Goldsmith be digging our own electoral grave? Mm -hmm. 
So, so this is absolutely fascinating and difficult for me to understand. Just why would it be that it's a top three issue for the public and yet, um, you know, leading contenders would be, you know, threatening to play a kind of culture war with something that's clearly a giant chemical problem with the atmosphere? How, how did that disconnect um, get into the system? I th- well, I think there is a sort of, you know, it's a similar issue uh, with other things that happen on social media, this sort of funneling approach. So people talking to people and then realizing they get sort of a limited you know, support on, on Twitter or social media. Um, yeah, I, I, we've seen this in the Conservative Party, a net zero scrutiny group uh, question uh, the, the need to achieve net zero by 2050, whether it's you know, a, an imposition. Uh, that, And I think there is a sort of maybe amongst some of my colleagues, a sense that you know, net zero is the sort of equivalent of, of, the, of the new sort of EU anti-EU campaign, a sort of right. unaccountable international elite uh, that's then imposing particular sort of targets on the UK. I just don't think that's shared uh, amongst the country at large and that you know, the wider population recognise. I mean, we're in the middle of a, 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 one of the hottest uh, summers the UK's ever faced uh, as this leadership contest unfolds. Um, and uh, I think the, the public recognise you know, that that's not the case. But the problem is, is that when you've got the selectorate of just the MPs, there are certain candidates on the right who are vying for every vote, uh, obviously, to get across that threshold mm. of, of 20, you need to stand. And then it's going to be a scrap to who can be the, the final candidate of the right. And the right's quite split, I think, in the Conservative Party. So it, my worry is, obviously, it's, um, you know, sort of the, person who wants to try to be seen as the most sort of uh, the, the, the figurehead of the right is going to try to make as many sort of pledges that maybe excites those MPs. Yeah, it's I mean, I have to say I've gotten kind of used to living in a country that has bipartisan consensus on climate change and the idea that that would begin to ebb away and we'd sort of see it return to the political sphere where those on the right, you know, maybe don't deny climate but aren't as ambitious is, is kind of alarming because the UK has played a really critical role internationally, I think. Um, in demonstrating it can be bipartisan. So I'd love to hear any thoughts on that. And then also, before we let you go, um, of course, we have to ask you, which of the current candidates, and appreciate the pool will be thin pretty quickly, do you think has the best approach to climate and nature right now? So I think on the question around um, you know, ensuring we retain uh, universal consent for, for net zero or for climate change action, I think it's a, it is a, it is an awakening that you know we do we are going to face this with net zero. I think you know widely more widely internationally, um, you know there's five more pres or seven more presidential elections till 2050, and you know the current crop of politicians you know won't be accountable for obviously decisions that are being taken, but also the consequences of their action. None of them are going to be around by the time we reach our sort of NDC sort of target yeah. in 2030. And I think that's something that we you know, we do need to always think about, you know, actually in terms of future innovation. And I, I hope that, you know, ultimately we might look at how we can move away from, you know, politicians being in charge, I think, sometimes of uh, of our climate goals. Because, you know, politicians' words are welcome and our commitments are welcome. But, you know, I think the completion of the Paris rulebook hopefully will allow us in the private sector to take more of a, of a role uh, than, than has been previously envisaged. And actually, what I've seen is I think the why I'm still optimistic is actually, and we saw this with Trump, you could have a, a, you know, a president come forward 
and claim he's going to take unilateral action against uh, yeah, removing the US and the Paris Agreement. And then actually you get a whole host of private sector organizations, NGOs, uh, federal states coming forward and saying, actually, you know what, we're still standing up for climate and we, we still are members. We still personally believe in, in, in the agreement. And, and I think that hopefully will continue to, to happen. Uh, which will prevent sort of you know, political agencies and forces uh, upturning our climate commitments. Now, as to the current leadership race, I, I mean, I have come out uh, to say I'm not backing any one candidate at the moment, but you know, there clearly are a number of candidates, I think sort of three in particular, who for me have made strong net zero pledges. You know, they are Rishi Sunak, uh, Penny Morden and Jeremy Hunt so far. Uh, but I want to keep pushing the candidates. I think that's the, the, the key thing. So I'm organising a, a hustings, as I said, for, for the candidates next week. Uh, we have a what's called our 1922 committee, uh, which is going to have its own hustings. And I'm intending to ask all candidates in 1922 hustings, what is their position on net zero? And will they commit to our existing environment and climate uh, commitments? Mm-hmm. Because ultimately, you know, they haven't got the mandate to be able to row back on them. You know, net zero was a manifesto commitment on the front page of the Conservative manifesto in 2019. So I, I'm very clear that that manifesto commitment needs to be kept. And obviously, I will look forward to their answers. The hustings will take place after the first vote on Wednesday evening. Chris, it's amazing to hear you talk about the independence of of achieving those climate change commitments. I I remember once reading the the head of the actuarial profession saying that the government wasn't competent to set the retirement age. We do have an independent central bank. Do you think there may be a separate branch of government that seeks to, um, you know, essentially protect us from climate change one day? Would you support such an initiative? Well, I think we've got the Obviously, the Independent Committee on Climate Change in the UK. Uh, I've just joined the Environmental Audit Committee, so I'll be scrutinising Lord Deben tomorrow on on, on their work. And obviously, they've come out recently with their annual report, actually setting out where the UK is or not when it comes to actually meeting their net zero goals. Um, I think that, you know, for me, when it comes to looking at sort of how do we mainstream this into the lives of every individual so that actually individuals can be themselves holding you know, their institutions to account because the more people that can question, the more people that can actually uh, demonstrate that they need change to be consistent and, and realizable, actually, then actually that makes it more permanent, I think. Um, the, 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 my worry, you know, and this is speaking as a politician, is that you know, if, if you make too few people accountable uh, for actually what is, it, it needs to happen, then um, it, it's very easy then for politicians to make U-turns. It's very easy for those commitments not to be made. As we all know, you know ever since um, we had the Kyoto uh, agreements, you know, I think, or, or certainly since we've had uh, sort of Rio back in, uh, what was that, 1990, you know, half of all carbon emissions in the atmosphere have been produced since 1990. And that's with you know, politicians mm. over the past 30 years claiming they're going to take action. You know, what we need is, is, a, is a far more encompassing measure, almost like the Montreal Protocol, when we've looked at CFCs and said, look, mm. this is happening. And, and, and actually a worldwide total sort of action was taken, but everyone realized you know, this is the consequence. So, you know, cross-sectoral approaches that can be uh, established now through the uh, realization of Article 6 uh, in the Paris Rulebook, for me, must be you know, a real priority. And obviously, who holds those organizations um, to account it probably does mean sort of you know, a, a regulatory body. And, and I think sometimes the legislation can't come fast enough in that regard. 
And Chris, is there any space for a scenario under which we wouldn't get the political and regulatory leadership that we would wish to continue in the UK, but that to go back to the other factor that you named and Article 6, which takes us to the private sector, is there space to think that um, that private investment decisions would be led primarily by competitiveness and, 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 and sheer survival of business? and that those would move forward independently. Obviously, they would be much more helped by regulation. Um, but how far do you think that um, that we could have something in the UK like what we saw in the United States under Trump, that both cities and corporates moved forward even without uh, national regulation? Exactly. So I mean, I hope uh, my hope also is that when it comes to private capital markets uh, and looking at sort of realization of patient capital as well, that the the new uh, world, uh, as Mark Carney has said, is that uh, climate change action is not only you know makes environmentally uh, good sense, it makes economic good sense. And that there are a number of assets, say in the UK, there's been a big discussion of whether we should embark on fracking. I, I, the government has yet to make a proper decision. They've opened up a review into whether that should take place. But we may be in a place where even if the government uh, allows for potential licenses, I don't necessarily see where the financing potentially is coming from. Uh, you know, private markets are recognizing these could potentially be not only stranded assets for the future, but simply you know, there could be consequences for uh, making those investments. Uh, and, and I think also not just financial consequences in terms of not being able to access that private capital, but also reputational risk. And, and I think you know, we, we reckon, I think you know, the ESG uh, frameworks that are being developed, particularly you know, through the science-based targets initiative, that's really having an impact now, I think, amongst you know, the, the banking organizations in the UK. Uh, you know, I met with NatWest for dinner yesterday, and, and, and they recognize that they're not going to be working with organizations or companies that can't help them achieve their own emissions reductions that they have like made. And I think someone like Alison Rose, who's come in as a CEO of NatWest, has said, this is a priority for us, and we're not going to be making investing decisions or lending decisions uh, without sticking to our science-based targets initiatives. So I think I've got great faith, you know, and I know this is about optimism and outrage. And I, am, <laughs> I am optimistic as well as obviously slightly outraged by some of the comments that my colleagues have made that we can achieve progress and change, even if sometimes the governments come and go. And, you know, that's the other thing to remember. You know, politicians come and go and you know, society at large you know, is on a journey and that's going to remain. Thank you so much for calling out science-based targets, by the way, which I'm sure will lead us to science-based policy. And together they will march into the sunset to our collective betterment. I, th I think outrage, but I think optimistic, but slightly outraged is about the best mix that we can find. So thank you for that. And thank you also for everything you're doing to try to keep this mm. issue front and centre throughout this Tory election process. So important. Chris Gidmore, so good to talk to you. Thanks so much. Thank you very much for having me Thank on. you so much. Thank you very much. Thanks. Goodbye. So there we go, the second uh, interview in our two-interview episode with Chris Gibmore. How interesting to get an insight from inside the process. And one of the conclusions I leave that with is we have to get this episode out within a few hours or it's going to be already old news. But uh, what did you both leave the conversation with? Concern, real concern, right? Uh, and as, as you said, Tom, uh, at the very beginning of this, it 
Uh, it's not going to, let, let's put it this way, it won't stop progress on climate at a macro level. But it is concerning that we would lose this shining example of uh, of of broad support of bipartisan support and 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 the huge enigma is the one that Paul asked how is it possible that we would lose the bipartisan support when the population is overwhelmingly for it it's just so difficult to understand that money in politics well not really um i was i was referring earlier to huge piles of money and there's more than one huge pile of money and that's the problem is is you know as the as the huge piles of money duke it out with each other, um, it has historically been the case that the biggest pile of money wins. The difference now is extreme weather is making all of this very real and very scary for everybody. And sounds stupid, but oddly enough, you know, certainly in the Northern Hemisphere, where most of the OECD nations are, you kind of don't tend to notice or freak out when the winter's a bit warmer than it used to be. But when in the summer, you know, you're, you're kind of sweating without air conditioning, worried about, you know, your elderly relatives and friends, then, then it's pretty real. So I think, you know, woe betide anyone who becomes leader of, of, you know, Prime Minister of the United Kingdom and abandons the public at this critical moment in our development. And, you know, it, God forbid that it were to happen, you may end up with a kind of Putin type situation where a particular attitude is disgraced by behaviour. And hopefully we can, and I'm being positive now, move forward to more rational government in the years ahead. I don't think there's any going back. I hope not. Yeah. I mean, I, I share your concern, Christian. I mean, the only thing I can sort of hope for is that the, the parliamentary party has really swung fairly far to the right with the Jacob Rees-Morgan European Research Group. And as we said at the beginning, you need to get, first of all, through that hurdle, and then you need to be nominated or, or, or selected by the party members themselves, who historically have been less concerned about these sorts of issues. So what I suppose the best we can hope for is that these candidates will respond to what the electorate wants once they're actually in number 10, even if they're responding to what they think the MPs and the party want in order to get there. Yes. But doesn't seem like a very good way to run a country or a world, does it? What was it, Chris? The selectorate. I thought that was a brilliant <laughs> word. <laughs> selectorate. Um, okay. And by the way, for the, for the two of you, um, question, because our non-UK listeners will probably be wondering what's husting a hustings uh, a hustings is an opportunity for a parliamentary candidate to appear before their voters and put their perspective across or before before any any group unless paul has a better description of it yeah, you know when you see Donald Trump on television by his airplane uh, getting loud, loads of people to sort of shout at the top of their voices that is a husting does it have an s at the end hustings yes if there's more than one no i think yeah, in yeah the tradition well, of the We'll, we'll put a link in the show notes. Please do. <laughs> to be honest, I, I didn't get any qualifications in this grammar it's at all. Right. Quite the reverse. Uh, I have I, my, my family motto is often wrong but it's never right. in doubt. So you'll get opinions from me. It's also can we, be rubbish. So we so understand. No we always get a bit strong opinions from you, Paul. Whether you know you have any knowledge of the subject or not. <laughs> You know, I find that the more knowledge you have sometimes, the less your opinions come forward with the kind of clarity and force that I want That's to be associated true. with. And I, I sh we should share with our international listeners, we do realise how absurd all this is. I have my uh, father-in-law staying from the US at the moment and I was watching on, on my laptop the unfolding of this whole process of ministers resigning and, you know, they were saying that Lord Sandwich of Boulder Dash would have to weigh in on something and my, my father <laughs> peered over my shoulder and goes, is this a comedy show? And I was like, yeah, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> kind of it. Kind I of it. A, a, a very 
a senior politician in in the Palace of Westminster, and she was dressed up in some like ludicrous suit, and she was with all these kind of people with with kind of cutlasses or sticks, and they were sort of banging the floor and walking in a weird way. And I kind of looked at her, and we were like kind of getting the giggles, like you know, really, really, you know, if if the Houses of Parliament don't look like something out of Harry Potter. I don't know what does. Well, excuse me, as Dame Christiana Figueres, I'm of afraid course. that I will have to call. Oh, oops, oops, I will have to call oops, both oops, of oops. you to order on political tradition in the UK. D- Dame Christiana, please forgive my uh, very foolish. I do words, like that uh, you roll then. that out when you need to. That's good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Notice how how sort of quiet and scared I am. <laughs> okay. Right. Are we done? All right. So um, thanks, everyone. This is one of two episodes this week, so there's probably more than enough. Enjoy, and we'll see you back with the regular episodes next week. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.